According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs, and we begin Proverbs chapter 8 this morning. Proverbs chapter 8. I'm going to move my Bible ribbon. There we go. Slightly awkward because verse 1 is on one page and then uh, flip it over and the rest of Proverbs 8 is on this next page. So, Anyway, do you ever have that problem? I don't know where to put my ribbon. I'll put my ribbon there. Commendation of wisdom. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice on top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet she takes her stand beside the gates at the opening of the city At the entrance of the doors, she cries out, To you, O man, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver and and knowledge rather than choicest gold for wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. All right, that's the first 11 verses and we're going to handle those and then move on to 12 and following 12 to 21, handle that and then we'll move on to 22 through 31, and that's where we'll spend probably the most amount of time in this chapter before we then get to the application in, in, or the exhortation in 32 through 36. So really, we're going to break this chapter down into four parts. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to set aside distractions and to humble us to receive eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice, Father, in your faithfulness to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who searches all things, even the deep things of God. And we call upon your faithfulness now, Father, through your spirit to teach us, to lead us, to open our eyes, claiming the promise that the word will not return void, will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a contrast, and we're talking, we've been looking at some uh, awful women in these recent chapters, (laughs) strange women, foreign women, adulteresses, harlots, uh, different ways you can express it. We're talking about the same kind of thing, Uh, but we get into chapter eight now, and we have beauty. We have uh, the glories of what God provides and an intimacy that he's designed us for, and it's expressed in in a metaphor, it's expressed uh, as a woman as uh, something that ought to be embraced and uh, something that we ought to be intimate with. And uh, this is not by accident. See, the the Bible makes these things clear that we want to be in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We We want to learn the things of intimacy through the Word of God with God Himself. And that's what's going to then equip us to handle human intimacies on a sanctified basis. And we don't get plunged into um, fornication and harlotry and all the other uh, cosmic or uh, carnal applications of intimacy or what they call intimacy when it comes right down to it. So we'll we'll draw that contrast here. Personified wisdom in chapter 8 is a sharp contrast with the cunning woman of chapter 7. Personified wisdom in chapter 8 is a sharp contrast with the cunning woman of chapter 7 and how she acts and how she speaks and how she dresses and what she does is diametrically opposed to what the harlot is all about. All right, and we're going to see every component of this couldn't be more opposite than if we uh, if we tried to make it more opposite we we wouldn't be able to between uh, lady wisdom uh, here in this chapter and the harlot from chapter 7. And uh, we'll, we'll kind of go item by item through these and we'll see the contrast and we'll observe what the distinctions are, uh, I think, as, as we uh, 
as we work our way through. Now, we're going to talk about personified wisdom in a couple of different ways, okay? And we're not going to, we're going to be cautious with it because there's some, we talked this morning in the, in the training hour with, with some of the cults and some of the horrible things that they do, finding a, a female goddess in this chapter, finding a fourth member of Trinity, finding uh, all kinds of horrible things. There is an application that applies to the God the Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, all right? He's called the Logos in, in John chapter 1, and he's called wisdom here. Uh, really, in verse 22 and following, we have the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be very Christological throughout this chapter. But in the early portion, all right, we're dealing still with a metaphor in terms of embracing the Word of God, being a disciple in the Word of God, living in the Word of God, everything that we would learn from John 15, or we would learn from, from the New Testament about living in the Word of God, right? John chapter 8. Being a true disciple means we're abiding in the Word of God, and the Word of God abides in us, right? First John, Second John, all of the New Testament applications as far as abiding in the Word of God. They're presented here in terms of embracing the right kind of woman, <laughs> embracing wisdom. And, uh, and we'll understand the metaphor for what it is, I think, as we, as we see each aspect of it. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? There is communication that takes place, and it's quite a bit different than the harlot from the previous chapter. When she opens her mouth, it's not uh, to edify the, uh, the knucklehead, all right? It's not to edify pethy. And the same pethy that we see in chapter 7 comes back here in chapter 8. He is the naive, he is the fool, he is the simple, and he needs to grow up. <coughs> and... Uh, the harlot has her own objectives with regard to Pethy, and uh, not for him to grow up, but to victimize him before he grows up, before he knows better, to damage him in his youth so that the ongoing damage keeps him uh, uh, hurt in, uh, in later years. And so um, when she opens her mouth, you'll notice, uh, really we're going to parallel a lot here of these early verses back with chapter 7, verses 10 and following. But you'll notice that, that she's a little hard to find because he's lurking on, look, looking for her all day long. Uh, and we've had three weeks off. Let me back up a bit. You should remember this. Uh, At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice and I saw among the pethy, the naive, I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. And passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. Now, notice there is a particular place that's called her corner, but she's not there. She's very unstable, and she's going from place to place to place. In fact, she's pretty busy all day long, okay, until he finally meets her. But passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And you'll notice in the twilight is the earliest he attempts it. He doesn't want to attempt it in broad daylight because then he might be seen, all right? And there's parts of town you don't want to be seen in, and there's, there's houses you don't want to be seen in, and so you use darkness to cover your activities, all right? Some of this may take more explanation in the coming years because our culture is getting to the point that they don't even hide their sin anymore, and things that used to be shameful and things that used to be hidden are now right out there in the full broad daylight, all right? And so it may be that a generation is coming when some of this will have to be explained more. Um, I think we can still relate uh, in the concept of sneaking around in the dark so people don't see you in the broad daylight. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. That's why I call her the cunning woman from chapter 7. And there's a distinction between cunning and wisdom, although sometimes the vocabulary is the same. Sometimes the same Hebrew word can be rendered as cunning or can be rendered as wise. Same thing in Greek. And, and so when we, we did kind of a, a study one time on, on this, <coughs> didn't we? Yeah, we had a study on, on uh, craftiness. Remember that? I don't remember when we did that, but I've got to find those notes. That's, that's probably going to be useful here. But the cunning woman, dressed as a, har- a harlot and cunning of heart, she is boisterous and rebellious. Now, when we see some of the things that wisdom does in chapter 7, she's very loud. It's a loud volume in the sense of how she calls and how she grabs men's attention. But it's not the volume that makes her boisterous. Don't, it's not a pure synonym of volume with boisterous. All right, You can be loud and not boisterous. I believe wisdom is loud. Loud and clear. 
in calling and the purity of her call. She's not boisterous, okay? And I think there's, a, there's that negative connotation to boisterous that shows it as being very inappropriate, being very uh, non-feminine in that respect, see? And, and there's, again, another distinction to be found. More explanation probably in the coming years is our culture has lost the concept of what it means to be feminine. So, uh, her feet, so boisterous and rebellious, whereas wisdom is just the opposite. Uh, her feet do not remain at home, whereas wisdom is looking for the stability, that is, those who embrace wisdom, those who take in wisdom, actually take wisdom into their homes. The glory of wisdom is that it is, it is nurtured within the home, that it is passed from one generation to the next generation to the third generation and so forth in the home, in a home setting. It's not all about rambling through the streets. It's not all about the party life in town. It's not the unstable life. It is the stable life. And this is what we're looking at here in terms of boisterous and rebellious. That's instability. The New Testament calls that tossed to and fro. We, we shouldn't be tossed to and fro. We should be stable. Believers under teaching should be stable. And that's what we have, the anchor that's sure and, and uh, keeps us stable. So she is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. And what I think is interesting about verse 12 um, in difference from what we're going to see with, with Lady Wisdom in chapter 8. Uh, some of that may seem similar to Wisdom in chapter 8, but I think <clears throat> the, the terms now, now in the streets, now in the squares, means she never stops, she never slows down. She's bouncing from place to place. One minute she's here, the next minute she's there. Because that's the nature of her instability and also the nature of her role as a predator. She is on the hunt. She is looking for men's souls. And so I uh, notice she is lurking. There's the opposite of wisdom. Wisdom's got nothing to hide. Wisdom's not lurking. Wisdom is standing front and center in a high place, crying out loudly over the whole population saying, come unto me, <laughs> right? Uh, embrace me, take me. I am here to bless you. And it's a, it's a significant difference in, uh, in what we're seeing here lurking by every corner. She seizes him and she kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him. Now, both women are going to have communication. The harlot here, the, the cunning woman here, has something to say to this young man, and she says it. Wisdom has something to say to the young man, and she says it. But the distinctions are just far too great, all right? Yes, there's a few similarities, but the distinctions, you couldn't, again, you couldn't be more opposite here if you tried. You know, in the, in the, in the offer that's made in terms of wisdom, um, and I haven't really, yeah, I did. I read the first 11 verses, didn't I? And she's calling out, she's asking for them to listen, entreating for them to listen. Listen, for I will speak noble things. The opening of my lips will reveal right things. She's urging them to listen, but she's not forcing herself on them. You see the difference? This brazen woman is, is seizing him and uh, kissing him and with a brazen face uh, seducing him into, the, into the, the sex fornication that she has here in mind. I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. Therefore, I've come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. And it's all about the experience and what we can do together here and the fun we're going to have and, uh, you know, my couch and linens and bed and all this other stuff, all right? Nothing about the wisdom she's going to impart or the doctrine he's going to embrace or the, the benefit it's going to be to him. It's not about the eternal fruit. It's about the, uh, the, the you know, the, the temporal physical pleasures so again you couldn't be more opposite and then let us drink of our fill of love until morning that's the physical love uh the dode not the in in, in hebrew uh, let us delight ourselves with caresses 
for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. Okay? And again, it's in secret. It's hidden away. No one will ever know. Talk about opposite. With wisdom, everyone's going to know. We want people to know. Everything is wide out in the open. Everything is publicly manifest. Here is a believer and here's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's a believer that's in the Word of God. He's intimate with Jesus Christ. It is very, uh, it is very much a, a matter of public display. It is very much uh, in, in, the, in the innocence of it and in the glory of it and the celebration of it. There it is. In any event, with her many persuasions, verse 21 of chapter 7, with her many persuasions, she entices him. And with her flattering lips, she seduces him. And that's the, the nature of the crafty influence. Wisdom's influence will make an appeal, but leaves that appeal to the, to the nephi, or to the pethy, to the young man, to the adult man. And uh, they have to make the volitional decision that that's what they want to embrace, that that's what they want to take in. All right, so that's enough of the wicked woman. Let's look at the, uh, the uh, wisdom here. Chapter 8, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? So there is volume. Lifting up the voice is what we talk about when we, you know, tell our student pastors, don't mumble, <laughs> speak up, amplify, project, make sure the, the, the thermostat can hear you, okay? And if you can preach to the thermostat, you can preach to everybody else in this room because the thermostat's on that back wall way back there, all right? And so lifting up the voice is not the same as saying that she's boisterous and rebellious, obnoxious, unfeminine, okay? But she is very clearly heard. And that's useful. On top of the heights, beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. And so rather than lurking, and rather than from now here, now there, and the rapid movements and the, the instability from the, the huntress, the harlot that we saw in the previous chapter, she actually takes a stand in a very public intersection uh, where the paths meet on a high prominent place to announce her offer and the invitation. And it's available for everybody. Absolutely available for everybody. Whosoever will may come. Any believer who wants to learn the word of God, the, the shepherd of the sheep is going to provide for teaching. You want to know the truth? Wisdom is available for you. All right? Beside the gates, at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out. Now here's something else that's interesting. Beside the gates, at the opening to the city. This is where all public business was conducted. This is where uh, judicial functions took place. This is where trials were held. This is where business dealings were uh, notarized. Okay? With a... Uh, Notary public and whatever else the procedures were, okay? And so it's, it's kind of interesting. It starts there, and then at the entrance of the doors, she cries out. So the appeal is made to everyone in public. It includes the, the government functions of the, the gates, courts, and, and, and everything else, business functions. But then it goes into the homes as well. With the uh, entrance of the doors, she cries out. And so the wisdom of the Word of God, we should live in every facet of our life. We shouldn't have a dichotomy of a, a personal life over here and a church life over here. It's all the same. Or a business life, or a public life, or a political life. And instead of compartmentalizing all these things and keeping our biblical Christianity out of our politics or out of our business or out of our uh, public life or anything else, it should all be combined into who we are walking before the Lord in the, in the openness of embracing wisdom. Proverbs 8 now in verse 4. To you, O man, I call, my voice is to the sons of man. And you'll notice it's a plural addressee. It's a crowd. It's not just uh, one little knucklehead, um, one vulnerable, uh, uh, naive youth who's being seduced in a secret kind of way. All right, this is a public group, wide open invitation, wide open call. It's also cross-generational because you have men and the sons of men there in verse 4. 
There's nothing better than having parents and children or grandparents and children and grandchildren. Two generations, three generations, more. All within the assembly. All within the, uh, under the authority of the Word of God. I don't think it's accidental that it's not until the fourth generation that men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay? And that's, um, where is that? That's in the, that's in the Toledoth, uh, the begat chapters that we all ignore, right? In Genesis 5. And... Um, Okay, so the end of chapter 4. It's not in my notes. I want to make sure I find it correctly. Genesis 4, 26. Verse 25 says, Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. For Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also, a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. And so now there's our third generation. We've got Adam, we've got Seth, we've got Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. I think there's a huge significance there in that statement once the third generation makes its uh, appearance. See? And that's not to say, of course, that Adam and Eve weren't intimate with the Lord or that Seth didn't know the Lord. Or I'm sure they called upon the Lord uh, prior to that. But with the arrival of generation number three, now we have this cross-generational um, circumstance where you've got grandparents, parents, and children. And you've got the, 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 the possibility here now for all these phases of life to come together and learn the Word of God together. Anyway, that's my side trip. I can go back to Proverbs 8 now. But it just bugs me to tears sometimes when, when a lot of the churches these days want to compartmentalize everybody and, and shove folks off into a room somewhere and find out, you know, based on your age and marital status and generation and whatever we figure okay well you know you're old you probably like hymns or well you're you're young here's the drums or um you know you're you're single and here's our here's our dating program over here and they they compartmentalize the whole church into these different boxes and whatnot and and they miss that cross-generational edification and the benefit in uh, in all of this all right Proverbs 8 and verse 5 now. O pethy, naive ones, understand prudence. O fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. Okay, what a difference between the opening of that other woman's lips, right? And the uh, flattering lips, and the, uh, the kisses, and the there was the persuasions and the flattering lips that she seduces him. This is not seduction. This is not, these are not flattering lips. This is an all purity, the communication of truth. And she really, she wants nothing from him. She wants to edify him in every respect. All right. Well, here's the contrast. So personified wisdom, point one in the outline, personified wisdom in chapter eight is a sharp contrast with the cunning woman of chapter 7. Unlike the harlot, wisdom shouts in clear declaration of her presence and her purpose. Unlike the harlot. Unlike the harlot. We already read those verses in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 7. Wisdom shouts on a high point at the crossroads for everyone to hear. She says, this is who I am and this is what I'm offering. <laughs> and she doesn't care who knows about it. She doesn't care who sees, who hears. She doesn't need to sneak around and hope that her husband's out of town on a business trip so she can get away with something. All right. That's the craftiness of, of this fallen world. The wisdom of God is first pure, right? Then sensible, then you know, we got the contrast of the two kinds of wisdoms from James chapter 3. So wisdom shouts in clear declaration of her presence and her purpose. This is who I am. This is where I am. This is what I am doing. This is why you need to listen to what I'm saying. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's simple, it's pure. The plan of God is so easy. And I, and I find it, again, sad how 
this gets lost in a lot of churchianity. You want to put on entertainment or programs or fun or games or whatever else, it's, church is not for the impartation of wisdom anymore in a lot of these places I'm talking about. Okay, But it should be simple. It should be, listen to me. I will speak noble things. The opening of my lips will reveal right things. Man, we come to church and we, we're, we're on holy ground. We, 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 the, the God of the universe is going to speak to us. You know, I want to take that moment of silent prayer and just tremble and humble and say, Father, who am I? Why should, you know, the, he who said, let there be light. He's got something else to say. And he's saying it today. And he's saying it to me. Man, who am I to, to receive something like that? And so it's, uh, it's extraordinary. The, um, the harlot seeks to trap the naive, but wisdom seeks to instruct him. The harlot seeks to trap the naive, but wisdom seeks to instruct him. And I find this, uh, they're both addressing pethy. In verse 5, wisdom is addressing pethy. Chachma, if you want to make that a name, or just leave it as wisdom. O naive ones, understand prudence. O fools, understand wisdom. And she wants to benefit him so that he stops being pethy. She wants him to grow up. She wants him to develop spiritually in, in maturity and understanding of the Word of God. And, uh, and wisdom will do that. The harlot doesn't want him to grow up. <laughs> the harlot, for him to get wisdom and prudence and understanding, that's the last thing she wants. Because if he listens to wisdom, then he's armed against her. He'll, he'll start to know better. He'll start to maybe make better decisions. Ideally, that's, that's what the Word of God is there for. If, if it's hidden in your heart, you don't sin against the Lord. If you're walking by means of the Spirit, you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh in our New Testament application, but even in the Old Testament. Those that are living by the standard of the wisdom that, that they receive, that's their benefit that they might not sin against the Lord. Psalm 119, addressing that. But uh, yeah, back to chapter 7. This uh, She's just seducing this guy, and he has no clue. And uh, But that's who she's looking for. Grabbing the, 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 the pethy here. Seeking to trap the naive, but wisdom seeks to instruct him. The wealth of wisdom surpasses any material wealth accumulation. The wealth of wisdom surpasses any material wealth accumulation. And in terms of our earthly wealth, our material wealth, uh, there are some with more and some with less and some everywhere in between, <laughs> right? And yet, through the Word of God, every believer has access to unlimited wealth. And you can accumulate as much as you're hungry for. You can dig it up, you can, you can dish it up, you can eat it, you can, uh, you can take this wealth in. The more you use, the more you accumulate, <laughs> unlike earthly wealth. In earthly wealth, the more you spend, the less you have. But in God's wealth, man, every time you spend, you're just reaping more. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It increases to your account when you give. And so uh, we see it here in chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. You know, the Word of God is supposed to be simple. And a humble child that's wanting to learn the truth, it's just simple. And if, it, if it's too complicated, you ask, you got to stop, kind of back up a little bit and say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Why is it all that complicated? Is this some kind of a scheme? Is this, well, why are you making this so complicated? In some respects, uh, the, the, the false teachers love to make crooked, uh, straight things crooked. They love to make the simple complicated. They love to uh, convince you that, oh, well, this is too deep and you, you won't really understand it. So just trust us. We'll, we'll tell you what, what to do kind of a thing. That's not the Word of God. 
That's, 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 a, that's a, a perverted priesthood that's trying to have power over you, right? We'll just keep the sacred text in Latin, and then that, that way the vulgar people will never have a clue, okay? And then Wycliffe and Luther and all these guys come along, and they start putting the Bible into those vulgar languages, and the Roman church lost their monopoly on the truth, okay? Now, there's... All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They're all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than the choicest gold. Now, you know, I think this goes great with with seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. There's nothing wrong with silver. We're not saying don't ever make any money ever again for the rest of your life. If, if, if you adopt that view, then the rest of your life will be pretty short because you'll stop eating. You know, if, if a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. Um, but, but using this idiom, this expression of this rather than that, it shows you the priority. It shows you if push comes to chub and it's either this or that, this comes first. Okay? If it's not push to shove and you can have both, this still comes first, then you go get that. Say, does that make sense? Seek ye first is not seek ye only. That's huge. You can seek ye first the kingdom of God, then you can seek second your your career advancement or your family provision or earthly matters that are that are legitimate matters of of bios life. We have bios life, and there's nothing wrong with seeking the things of bios life so long as we're not seeking them first. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And so take my instruction and not silver. If, if, if it has to be either or, well, then there's your choice. It's like obeying God rather than man. Ideally, I'm going to obey both until it comes to an either or and I can't do both. And if I can't do both, then I'm going to obey God rather than man and, and face the jail time or consequences, whatever else might happen. Take my instruction and not silver. And knowledge rather than choices gold. A lot of this is redundant, repeated because of the the nature of the poetry here. Um, Silver and gold being in parallel, instruction and knowledge being in parallel, but the the principle is the same both times. That uh, the Word of God ought to be priority number one. And, uh, you know, do you you choose your... um, Do you choose the, the church you attend based upon the job you've got? Or do you choose the job you've got based on the church you attend? see or the place you live and then all the rest okay well uh man i got this great job i'm moving to this town and this well there's no church in this town but oh well i'll just have to make do well wait a minute if there's no face-to-face lampstand if there's no shepherd why are you going there who has the shepherd of the sheep allotted you to all right wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her and so this addresses the issue of desire. This addresses the issue of comparisons. What do you find desirable and why? And not every desire is a wrong desire. But if it's a desire that you have now compared to the Word of God, now we got issues. Why is this desire taking precedence over doctrine? All that you desire. What is a desire? <laughs> and and uh, if it's not shaped by doctrine, then what's it shaped by? If it's a desire for something other than the Word of God, ask yourself, what is motivating that desire? Why do I like the things that I like? Okay? I'm going to be careful or I'll philosophize on that for the entire hour. But I mean, it's, it, is, it is worth considering. Why do we like? You know, what, what is like? Why do we, you know, why do we like Glenn Fry over David Bowie? Okay, why do we like uh, vanilla over chocolate? Or in my wife's case, chocolate over vanilla. Why? Why do we like Southern Gospel over um, whatever, rap music? Okay, why do we like, we like what we like. These matters of taste, these matters of appetite, these matters of preference, these matters of pleasure, because they're pleasurable to our ears, they're pleasurable to our minds, they're pleasurable to our feelings, they're pleasurable to our emotions or whatever. 
Why do we like the things that we like? And if there's something that we like, <laughs> you ever notice that? You look back and you say, man, I used to like that. I used to like that. Why don't I like that anymore? It's been a long time since I've even thought of that. Okay? You're sitting there and you're... <laughs> we were at the, uh, the Hard Rock Cafe and uh, eating dinner and they had different music coming on. And uh, Motley Crue came on and, and they were playing Smoking in the Boys' Room. <laughs> and I knew every word. <laughs> I could sing along with all the lyrics... And I thought, why can I do this? <laughs> I mean, everything else I've forgotten in my life, why can't I forget that? Anyway, you ask yourself, and then, and then you thank God that, you know, I don't really like that stuff anymore. <laughs> I'm not sure why I used to. Okay? So um, when you make these choices, what is a desirable thing? Desire is not sin. Okay, they can become sin. Lust is sin. I mean, and it can become sin. Lust is a is a, is an inordinate desire that then is a, a temptation factor. But why do we desire what we desire? The capacity to desire. The capacity to choose one over the other to find something tastier, prettier, uh, nicer smelling, nicer feeling, whatever. Okay, do you like silk or do you like cotton? Do you like Short sleeves or long sleeves or whatever. I, to me, fabric on my forearms is just ooh, creepy, crawly, yuck. Any kind of fabric on my forearms is just okay. Now, why is that? I'm probably just brain damaged or something. But we we develop likes, we develop um, desires. And if we start to evaluate that some of them are taking away from our priority in the Word of God, they have to go. They have to go. Anyway, um, this is not the first time we've uh, had this as a concept. You might recall back in chapter 3. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Asherah, happy. Here's our Beatitudes, as Jesus has made use of these himself. How blessed, how happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Notice it's it's a find and it's a gain. That's a profit term. Gain, right? Profits and losses. Gain. Who gains when you take in the Word of God? You do. Every time. For her profit is better than the profit of silver. And her gain better than fine gold. Nothing wrong with profit. We should be profiting. <coughs> and in the Word of God, we profit every time. She is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire compares with her. So again, we have desires and we have comparisons. And I find that interesting. Anytime you have a desire, and then I guess they get pitted up against alternative desires, or you have competing desires... And then I guess you got to kind of pick and choose. <coughs> what do you desire more? What do you desire more? Nothing you desire compares with her. And are you drawing comparisons that should not be drawn? See, are you putting something on par with the Word of God? With the ministry of a local church? With uh, not just the academic instruction, but the teaching, the fellowship, the communion, and the prayer? All the functions of a local church lampstand. And are you comparing something with that? Contrasting something with that? Substituting a parachurch organization for a real church? What are you doing? Because if the Bible says it's not comparable, why are you comparing? It is beyond compare. Nothing you desire compares with her. In other words, it transcends space and time. It's beyond anything in temporal life. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Even the unbeliever, those are kind of the main things they're looking for. They want to live a long, happy life, and they want riches and honor. (laughs) And they're going to look anywhere they can except the Word of God to try to find it. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. 
She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And this is, we talked about this when we taught chapter 3, but the, uh, the amazing thing here is the tree of life, of course, is what Adam and Eve were expelled from. The angel was posted to keep them from getting back to it. In fact, with the flood, the, the geography of Eden is now gone. The tree of life is no longer stands upon this earth. But we have a tree of life in the Word of God for every born-again believer who embraces the truth of the Word of God. Happy are all who hold her fast. And it's just, it's to me, I love the, the expression that I learned it as a child that, that Colonel Thiem developed, the frantic inveterate search for happiness. I think it was the first acronym I ever learned. F-I-S-H, it spells the word fish. And I was probably, I don't know, five years old or eight years old or something. And I thought, hey, that, that makes a word. It makes the word fish. And I learned that wasn't a coincidence. It was supposed to make the word fish. That you remember, frantic, inveterate search for happiness. And how many people are just searching for happiness all day, every day, never finding it? But God and his word is making it possible right there for everybody. For the richest, for the poorest, and every tax bracket in between. Happy are all who hold her fast. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. And that goes beyond what we're talking about here in this context, but there's a good view of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called wisdom. He is the creator. He is the agent of Trinity that was assigned by the Father to do these things. Anyway, we'll have more to say on that here in Proverbs chapter uh, 8. Over to Job, Job 28. This is the chapter that uh, gave me the name for my study. I call my study The Mine. You might have seen that on Facebook. Job chapter 28. <coughs> In verses 15 through 28, really it should be maybe 12 through 28, or it might be a better division, 12 through 28, because in the first 11 verses, uh, we've got an extraordinary description of mining in the ancient world, of mining that goes back to the third millennia B.C., okay? Um, you know, if he's just, uh, say, four generations after the flood or six generations after the flood in that context. Um, Noah and his sons are still alive. He's about two generations ahead of, of, uh, of uh, Abraham or, or Terah. But look at their capacity for metallurgy, their capacity for industry. You know, they were, they were geniuses, absolute geniuses. How do you think Noah built the ark? I believe they had they had they had skill they had tools they had uh, they had some amazing things. All right, surely there is a mine for silver in a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust and copper is smelted from rock. Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock in gloom and deep shadow. You know, if, you, if you're going to be a miner, it gets dark down there. <laughs> so you got to take torches and lanterns and oil and and uh, you got to bring light into the darkness as you're searching out for uh, for these nuggets, okay? And and think about the effort that's required to get these nuggets. <coughs> and people don't want to put effort into learning the word of God. Oh, that's too hard. Oh, I got to think. Oh, I got to I got to compare scripture to scripture. I you know I don't want to think. I just want to sit here and passively be told what to do. Yeah, that's not how it works. <clears throat> he sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro far from man. You know, you ever do any spelunking? You ever do any cave, you know, wanderings? I did a lot of that as in Boy Scouts growing up as a kid. A lot of caves in Washington State. and It's kind of fun. You're crawling around. You've got your flashlight. You're looking around and there's little drop-offs. There's, there's pits. There's um, different shafts and things. The earth from it comes food, and underneath it is turned up as fire. Obviously, you've got your topsoil, you've got your, 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 your farming, and uh, just think how you know useful the earth is, the food that feeds you, and then the stuff you dig for down deeper. Its rocks are the source of uh, sapphires. Its dust contains gold. 
the path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. You know, the deeper you go, I mean, you got some, yeah, you got worms and whatever fairly close to the surface. But, you know, once you start getting down deeper, you're not worried about the lions and the bears and the wolves and the other animals. You're not going to be encountering, uh, you know, the proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at, its, at the base. He hews out channels through the rocks, and his eye sees anything precious. See, the glory of mankind as the steward of the earth is not just to leave it the way they found it, but to use it, to harness it, to channel its power, to reap its wealth. That's the opposite of what the, uh, the, the, the global warming crowd will tell you, the environmentalists today will tell you, the anti-God people will tell you. Uh, that you've got to restore it back to the way it was. But, you know, don't drain the swamp and make it useful farmland. Put it back into a swamp condition again so the serpents can lurk, okay? Yeah, they want the serpents to lurk all right. Serpents lurking in their soul as the Antichrist world viewpoint has been expressed. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the light. You know, yeah, God put the river there, but... What does he want us to do with it? Can we harness it? Can we channel it? We're supposed to. We can put it to productive use. We can take potential energy and make actual energy out of it. And God in his wisdom put that there. He crafted us in his image. The creator wants us to be creative. And think of all the blessings we have to be able to do just that. All right, now that's earthly wealth in those first 11 verses. But where can wisdom be found? <laughs> you know, how deep do you got to dig uh, to find wisdom? Where is the place of understanding? Is it in the physical dimension? Can you climb high enough or dig deep enough? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. It transcends temporal realities. You know, we can, we can price certain things, and, and things have relative value compared to other things. We can say gold is more than silver. Platinum is more than gold. We can, we can contrast things. Um, <clears throat> but wisdom? How do you put that on the scale? It transcends earthly wealth. Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep say it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. I joke around sometimes because people want to ask how much are those notebooks in the hallway or how much are the readers or, or there's no price on this. I say, that's right. You can't put a price on that. And they say, well, come on. It's got to cost something. Well, sure, it costs something. But learn the difference between its cost and its price. How about that? <laughs> okay. Grace is uh, somebody else paid the price. So it's offered without cost to you. And... Uh, different things. Well, I, I just don't feel right just taking it. Well, that's called grace. Give as unto the Lord. You've received freely, you can give freely. And then sometimes they really want to get insistent. I thought, how ornery is that? Okay, fine. $5,000. <laughs> Either that or grace, up to you. <laughs> but even $5,000 for an ABC reader is an insult. How do you put a price on the Word of God? See. All right. It, it cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. You realize there was a time that glass was one of the most precious commodities. It was exported. It was traded. It was worth more than gold, per, you know, pound per pound in, in value. Until, <laughs> this is the nature of scarcity, until manufacturing processes were refined and, and improved. And then the blowing of glass, the making of glass, it became so widespread and so cheap. There's just glass everywhere. And as soon as you have a glut on the market, there's no more, you know, scarcity uh, is, is the driving force of, of economics. And as soon as it's everywhere, then uh, the price comes down. See, same thing. And then you can illustrate that with everything, Okay. Smartphones, the first ones ever were pricier than anything. And the more widespread they get, 
the, the, the price comes down. And so uh, gold or glass cannot equal it. Uh, coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. And the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it uh, be valued in pure gold. And what I find is interesting is that every one of these items, or many of these items, are, are attached to a geography. They're attached to a place. Notice it's the gold of Ophir, but it's the topaz of Ethiopia. And why is that? Well, because some places are more richly blessed with particular um, natural resources, particular aspects of wealth. And so, yeah, Ethiopia's got a good handle on the topaz market because that's what they're producing in better quantities or better ways or better quality or, you know, that's, that's their provision. Whereas Ophir has the gold and, and all these other things. When God's giving Adam his tour of the Garden of Eden, he highlighted the rivers, he highlighted the water rights, and he highlighted the minerals. And there's a purpose in that, in that we have land uh, territory, we have boundaries, we have property, and, uh, and the, the, the delineation of boundaries and borders, and we have natural resources within the property, and we have, while it is under our control, we have the use of it, and we should have the use of it. And if uh, we find that uh, trade is desirable, we've got topaz, they've got coral, hey, let's... Uh, um, freely exchange on an, on agreeable terms, and it certainly is a lot more productive than um, risking life and limb and going to war to take something. <laughs> okay. In any event, read Rodney Stark sometime. He'll he'll expound upon this stuff in in marvelous ways. So, where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Who corners the market on wisdom? Is it Ophir? Is it, is it Ethiopia? Is it, okay, well, it's, uh, it's God himself from his throne. And as an earthly agent, as an earthly steward, the Jewish people are the people you want to talk to that will be communicators of that heavenly wisdom. Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. You know, the, the, the believer gets to depart this life and go into the presence of where all these answers can be found. The unbeliever is off to abandon and death and all they have are the rumors, the memories, the legends. God understands its way. He knows its place. He looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, he saw it, he declared it, he established it, also searched it out. And to man, he said, Here's, the whole earth is created and all of the, the physiology of the earth and all the, the water systems and earth systems and all of the ecosystem of the earth. And then he speaks to man and he says, here's something that you can't get from the earth. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. That natural revelation only takes you so far. Special revelation is required in order to apprehend the things of God. And you cannot put a price on it. You know, you wonder, how packed would this place be on a Sunday morning if there was a $100 bill on every seat? <laughs> Word gets around town that, ooh, if you go to Austin Bible Church, man, every seat in the auditorium has got a $100 bill sitting on it. It's yours for the taking. I suspect we'd have a packed house. <laughs> we'd have ushers at the door counting people coming in and we'd, we'd be turning people away. Hmm. And yet the wisdom that God's providing is beyond any deflationary fiat currency that, uh, <laughs> of whatever denomination you could put on, uh, on these seats. Now, point two. Wisdom speaks in the first person. And before we can get to the soliloquy of verses 22 and following, we actually need to recognize the previous soliloquy. 
Wisdom speaks in the first person as to her associations and disassociations via a love-hate dichotomy. Proverbs 8, verses 12 through 21. Again, here's the point. Point two. Wisdom speaks in the first person. I, wisdom. Wisdom speaks in the first person. Actually, the first person precedes verse 8. There's, there's uh, she cries out, she cries out, she takes her stand. Then verse 4 is when the I is first introduced. I call in verse 4. I will speak in verse 6. My mouth, verse 7. My mouth, verse 8. Wisdom speaks in the first person as to her associations. Who does she surround herself with? She dwells with prudence. Okay. And her disassociations, who does she have nothing to do with? Or maybe we should say, who has nothing to do with her? <laughs> she has associations and she has disassociations. She has loves and she has hates. <gasps> hate? <laughs> We're not allowed to hate. Hate is bad. Come on, God is love. We don't want to hate anybody. We want to love everybody. I agree. We want to love everybody. But there are those that must be hated and loved. It's not an absence of love. It's a dichotomy. Okay? In other words, they're both true. I can love my enemy even while I hate my enemy. Even while I hate what they're doing. And I hate their um, attack on the Word of God doesn't mean I don't love them. I still love them. Okay? But that's the love that rejoices in righteousness and does not rejoice in unrighteousness. That's the love that speaks the truth. That's the love that wants to snatch them out of the fire. Not leave them in the fire and tell them, oh, well, that's okay. God loves you. Stay in the fire. All right? It is a love-hate dichotomy. Verses 12 through 21. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The, so here's a dwelling, here's an abiding, here's a living in the Word of God and the Word of God living in us. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And I think this verse needs to be shouted from the mountaintops and forced upon everybody that tries to shove some perverted definition of love down your throat. Because that's not love. What they're selling is not love. What they're doing is not love. When they're tolerating and sanctioning and approving evil, that's not love. Love doesn't do that. Love hates that. In fact, I think it's a lack of the fear of the Lord. I think those who compromise with sin don't fear the Lord in the way they need to. If they feared the Lord, they wouldn't be compromising with sin. And, then, and, I, and I know, I mean, it's, it's, it gets personal, it gets hard, you have family members, you've got emotions that are connected, you've got all kinds of sadness. I get that. But the fear of the Lord should trump any of that. Because if you're compromising based on a, a, a Storgos family love uh, family member, if Storgos outdoes Agape, what are you doing? Storgos would have kept uh, God the Father, would have kept God the Son in, in glory and not sent him to this earth. But Agape sent him to this earth. So the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And, and don't, don't fall for the either or. You still love them, but you hate them at the same time. And because you love them and hate them, you want them to get out of that evil that they're in. You want to snatch them from the fire. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. and underst- I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, no, they don't. <laughs> Not all of them. Not all the time. What's it talking about here? Which kings? I mean, Solomon? Are you, are you talking about Solomon? Is he the one writing this? David? But what about other kings besides them? What about the, the... Are we talking about time or eternity at this point? 
if we are discussing the wisdom of God that transcends temporal realities, maybe there's something more than just current events at work. Well, we'll come back to this because there's four subpoints and uh, there's a lot we want to detail, but I'm out of time. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the blessings of Proverbs. I pray that we will understand love and hate, that we'll understand wisdom. We'll understand the right way to embrace wisdom so that we do not embrace the harlot. And uh, Father, that we would identify the truth of your word as the, the uh, lady wisdom we embrace and the idolatry of this evil world as the, the harlot we embrace. And Father, uh, make it clear to each one of us day by day and moment by moment where the, uh, the wrong embracings are and the right embracings. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.